We have a topic today on the show that threatens to get into the realm of risque, but we will start with Advent Week 3 right after this. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Welcome into this edition of the Corey Truax Show. When I say there at the top with the tease that we're going to get into something a smidge risque, here we'll, I will give you something of a preview. A, uh, a woman on Twitter, Susanna Weiss, who calls herself some kind of sex philosopher and sex therapist, has a bunch of new rules regarding consent and sexual activity amongst adults. And I just thought I had a profound thought around it. And so I'm going to give you that after we get into our Advent Week 3 theme. Thank you for listening to the show on his radio talk, 91.9 and 92.9, wherever you listen, if it's to the podcast. I am grateful that you give this show any time at all. Uh, actually, at the, uh, at the end of the year here, uh, the, the, st- the streaming service Spotify, so that's uh, Spotify is, is like Pandora. I- I'm not going to explain Spotify. You probably all know what Spotify is. People use it to listen to music and to podcasts. If you're a Spotify premium member, so you pay them money for certain access and unlimited access to their catalog of music, they are giving their premium members a report. Like, here's how many hours you spent this year listening to music, and here's the bands you listen to, and how many hours you listen to this band, and here's how many hours you listen to this song. And I was touched that a few people, uh, one on Twitter, I think two on Instagram, they posted that I was their... Number one, listen to podcast. So to Jake and to Jessica, and I feel terrible right now that I cannot remember who put it on Twitter. Uh, I, I saw one where I was not the number one listen to podcast. Matt Walsh was, and then I was number two behind Matt Walsh on someone else's. But f- for real, that blows my mind. I do mean this. I'm not being humble because God knows I'm not. It surprises me that you listen. Like some people, you you listen and you're uh, you know me personally, and so that's less surprising. But Maybe it should be more surprising. But like people I don't know that I've never met, you're out there listening, and I, I'm i blown away by it. I'm honored, I'm humbled by it, and it makes me want to work hard every time I turn on these microphones. Uh, because if, if you're giving me 50 minutes of your life every week, that's, and if you're listening live on 91.9 and 92.9, you're giving me an hour? Oh, that is, that's some pressure of the best kind to make sure that we are doing a good job for you on The Corey Act Show, where, by the way, we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything, and that's what we're going to do uh, right now. I should also mention I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. If you are in the upstate of South Carolina, you are invited, and I hope you will join us. Let's start here. Week number three of Advent. The theme is twofold. Depending on your Advent calendar, you will see that the theme is joy or the theme is peace. Week one was hope. Week two was preparation. You can use joy or peace for this week three theme. I think you can do both because of a text that I'm going to read to you from Scripture in just a moment. But I want to make something clear first about joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness comes from, uh, from a chocolate chip cookie. Happiness comes from your favorite football team actually winning for once, as I haven't experienced in a long time. Happiness comes from a a raise at work or a promotion. It's getting a good thing. 
and then it fades. Happiness usually is determined by circumstance. When circumstances are good, you are happy. And when circumstances are bad, you are sad. You are not happy. Joy is altogether different. It's deep and abiding. It is, it is a deep indwelt knowledge that when you didn't get the promotion or the raise, that it's still what's best for you. It's, an, it's a deep abiding knowledge that when the interpersonal relationship thing didn't work out how you thought it would, when the person you thought you could trust you, could, you couldn't, when you were disappointed by somebody, when you got that crossword spoken to you, whatever, it, whatever thing that made you feel not happy because the circumstances weren't good, deep and abiding joy is knowing, I don't know how, but I deeply and genuinely believe it's for my good. And the Lord is doing something for me in it. So the week three theme is joy or peace. Now, the two are connected. And depending on your Advent calendar, you might get an emphasis of one over the other, but the quintessential uh, text for, for Christmas is Luke 2. When I was in second grade, my school made us memorize Luke 2. And the issue for, <laughs> the issue for me now is I basically have it still memorized in like the KJV. Like in, in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and, and everyone went to be taxed. Everyone went to his own city. And now I, I usually teach out of and read out of the ESV, and that is not how it reads. Uh, it is not. Uh, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Uh, it's, it's a little different now. Anyway, the second scene in Luke 2 is with the shepherds and the angels. Uh, this, this passage is so famous. I'm almost positive this is the one. And Charlie Brown Christmas, they read Luke 2. In any event, the second scene is when the shepherds are visited by the angels. And so I want to take you that. take you to that. Luke chapter 2, it starts in verse 8. And let's just imagine it together. So verse 8 says, In the same region, out, out there in, in Bethlehem, in the same region there were shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock by night. So I need you to do me this favor. Use your imagination. Create the scene in your head. We don't know what time of year it is, but it is night, so let's assume it's cool or cold. It is not our nighttime. Our nighttime has, you know, electricity, and you can see things at night. At night, then, it is dark out in those fields. Even if you got a lot of sunshine, excuse me, a lot of uh, star starlight and moonlight, it's still going to be dark. You ever been out in the middle of nowhere type area? And there's no light, like it is overwhelmingly dark. And so it's probably cool, it's a cold, dark. You can hear the whatever those bugs that make all those noises at night. And so here and here, here we have as shepherds. And so what we know culturally is these folks, because of the nature of what they do, they're they're, they're called ceremonially unclean, which means these these are not the dudes going to the temple. Uh, they are they're they're not thought of highly, they're not highly regarded uh, because of because of what they do. And so that means it's a certain kind of man culturally. Bit of an outsider, kind of a roughneck. I don't know how much time you spent with guys like this, but whatever you imagine the conversation is in like some of the harshest like locker room talk, like this is probably what's happening. Shepherds are thought of as these rough dudes. They're out there in the field. There's, there's no mitigating circumstance. So like maybe you behave better in front of kids or behave better in front of women, but... These are just rough men by themselves out doing their job in the middle of the night. You can imagine what the conversation was like. It's probably going to make me blush and make us all uncomfortable. So that's the situation. And into that world, into a dark, cold, 
cool to cold hillside with some really rough men who were not of high repute, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And of course they were filled with great fear. The implication of shepherds is they're not exactly living lives of uh, that you're highly regarding. There's an implication even here. I, I try to point that, paint that picture for you of what it was like out there. God knows the, the jokes that, that just got told, the language that just got used, and then angel. Oh, he's like that. This is not good. They've come to judge. You've got to assume there's that fear is because of who we are, this angel is here to bring some wrath for how we've been. Verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So we have our forward joy. That's the week three theme. For, uh, let's talk more about this joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David uh, a Savior. A Savior is born who is Christ, who is the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for, Christ the Lord. And if you get to uh, when all the other angels show up, and in verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, not singing, but saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, I've got this great joy. I've got news that's filled with great joy. The Messiah has come. Jesus is here. The one you've all been waiting for has arrived. And now here's all my friends and the thing that we're saying together, glory to God in the highest, on earth there is peace. So the two things are there. They're they're connected even in the text. Joy and peace come together. So it's not happiness, it's joy. And we have this joy this deep abiding belief that that all things are working together for our good, and then we can have this peace. We don't have to have anxiety and fear because Jesus has come. And so let's talk through three implications of this. One, think about that first Christmas. We think about these shepherds, and as they go into the town and they start spreading this news, this thing we've all been waiting for has finally happened. From the Yuan Gelion, as 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 God pledged to send someone to fix our greatest problem, sin, that there, there's going to be one coming that's going to end all the darkest kingdoms. We're, we're going to have one come where the lame walk and the blind see and the sick are healed, even the dead are made alive. All of our worst problems and our biggest enemies, he is here. He's not coming anymore. He's arrived. And think of the explosion of joy that comes with this news. Think of the deep abiding peace to know there's a day has come where a lot of our strife and the the things that we've worried about and wondering if God was ever going to keep his promise, those days are over. So that was the first Christmas. And then now we look back at the, the first Christmas, Jesus' advent, him coming to earth. And he brought some joy and he brought some peace. Maybe you've experienced the joy of Jesus. Maybe you experienced the peace of Jesus. But then we still look around a world that is not peaceful. That is not joyful. And we long for it. 
We know we've got part of the peace Jesus brings. We've got part of the joy brings. We want it all. We want it for ourselves. And the peace and the joy we often find, sometimes it, it doesn't stay quite long enough. At church last week, we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it's a song of longing. Even musically, the way it's got all these minors in it that need to be resolved. Musically, it was written in a way to make things feel unresolved. I, I need Messiah to come. Come rescue us. Come rescue captive Israel. Come rescue captive God's people. There's, and even in the song, some of these lyrics are, you know, bid, bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Lord, the, the envy of this world is, getting, is, is really getting to me. The, the, the quarrels and the fights that we have, the stripes that we have with one another, it, it is hard. So Lord, come and just end it. Come bring the joy of us being free of that. Bring the peace against the envy, strife, and the quarrels. And we want it. We look back on it and know that it did come in part, but we want it in fullness. And so, then what do we do with it now? What do we bring to our Christmas spirit now? Well, this. The people who wanted Jesus and were longing for Jesus to come the first time, they were longing for him to come and solve our deepest problem, sin, death. Well, now we just point again to Jesus' second coming. The advent of his first coming is to point us to the reality of a second coming. That there is coming a time, and we should long for it and look for it and have joy around it. Feel the deep joy. He's coming again, and all of the envy, strife, and the quarrels will cease. He is coming again. So we can feel peace in even chaos because we know he is coming to make all things right and to make all things new. And so this Christmas season... As you long for the joy and the peace that Jesus brought in part in his first coming, look longingly to the day he will bring it in full. When we come back, I've got a tweet and an article from a a woman that uh, I think we need to talk about. And this might get a little uncomfortable because we're going to talk about our very broken sexual ethics. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. If you would be so kind, connect to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You will find me there. Look for my very unique and odd name, Corey Truax, and you can connect. Uh, I've been working on piano pretty hard, guys, since the middle of the year, and I'm starting to put those songs out there, and it's just fun. It's fun to come around and, uh, and I guess, listen, learn music and listen to music together as well. So that's out there, plus the show and other just general commentary throughout the week. And so you following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is highly appreciated. It'd also be good to follow along with you as we have, uh, you know, a, a whole digital community together uh, through the through the podcast and through the radio show here on his Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9. I saw on Twitter something that, uh, of course, makes me uncomfortable. Guys, I can't tell you how much of a when it comes to the topic we're about to get into, I'm sort of a prude. I don't like talking about these things. It's very uncomfortable. But we're all adults. And so uh, we, I think we're all adults. I, I do have some teenage listeners, but I'll, let's, uh, let's talk through this. Susanna Weiss has on her bio, she, on Twitter, this woman, uh, that she has some kind of expertise in the topic of sexual encounters amongst people. So this is her, her academic training. 
And she put out on Twitter the idea that consent, this is a big conversation we're all, we're all having because Me Too movement and lots of things on college campuses, what is consent for women uh, and how, how we thought about it poorly in the past. Like This is a, a, a large conversation culturally. And Susanna Weiss puts out on Twitter that we haven't properly connected the idea of consent to just physical sexual acts, but also sexting, the idea of using your phone and text uh, to... Uh, man, I tell you, I'm not good at these conversations. Uh, and I guess you wouldn't call it a sexual encounter, but in in flirtation, and that's, that's probably a little bit more than flirtation. Uh, in any event, she has the idea that you also need consent. And what she put out there as like a way to ask for permission to send sexually explicit material in a text to other to someone else she put out like a script like use this script send this to your significant other to get consent and it's so uncomfortable i can't even read it it's so awkward it's not explicit at all it's just i i don't want the audio of me reading these words to exist for anyone to ever play back for me because it's so awkward what she says and so she has this idea of of asking for consent before engaging in any kind of sexual dalliance through text. Now, this built on top for me several other things I've seen over the last few months. For example, and she has an entire article here and she mentions some of these and so I'm pulling some of this from Susanna Weiss. You might have seen a couple couple months ago someone released something called the consent condom. So it takes, it's wrapped in a way, this condom is packaged in a way that it requires four hands to get it open. So you have to have more than, you see what they're doing there? You're going to need two people to be agreeing upon the opening of this condom for it to be used. Therefore, obviously, we have affirmative consent. I saw the article connected to Susanna Weiss because she linked to it. Planned Parenthood has on their website an entire uh, an entire section about consent. And some of the language they use is that in any kind of sexual encounter, you need consent before, during, and after, by the way. It says, and after. which In which case, I go, wait, what? Are, are you telling me that a man can retroactively become a rapist? So he, he was in some kind of sexual encounter with a woman, and consent was affirmative before and during, and then afterwards, regret makes him retroactively uh, a an, an offender of some sort? But Planned Parenthood has that on their website. And it says enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, affirmative, consent, before, during, and after. And then you go out to California, you pile on top that we're actually getting put into college campuses, regulations about affirmative, cons- affirmative consent. Like, liter- like There are forms being created. I can't imagine how... How rom- how romantic the mood once identification and forms and triplicate start getting involved. And here's what it made me all think of. The world has come around to an odd, the secular world has come around to a surprising and odd Puritanism. What is Susanna Weiss and Planned Parenthood and affirmative consent laws, what is the secular culture doing except creating their own Puritanism, their own new sexual rules? 
These would have been the people that would have complained about the church and about Christian people of their own prudishness and all these rules they've put around uh, around the, the topic and the act, the activity of sex. They would have complained. And now they're making up their own rules, and they sound often more prudish forms and b- literal forms to fill out. And the the uh, the idea of aff- affirmative before, during, and after uh, consent. Like they, they, they sound like their own prudishness. So here's what's happened. They, they first destroyed the sexual ethic. The sexual ethic, the, the idea, the original one we had, even 50, 60 years ago, that people would at least outwardly support, they would say these words, that sex is something to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in marriage only. Do you know what world where you don't need consent, condoms, and indemnification, and forms to fill out, and affirmative consent laws? You know what world you don't need that in? In a world where people actually practice the biblical sexual ethics. Because there's safety in them. You guys have had to create, you secular culture, you've had to create all of these things because you broke the sexual ethic. There was a good one. It protected men, it protected women, it was healthy, it was good for people. And then you guys went and tore it apart, and now you're realizing, oh, we, we have to have some rules. If we're, if we're going to tear down the old rules, we've got to replace them with something. And here's the other part I'm noticing. In the world where the previous traditional sexual ethic is being practiced, there is so much safety that you don't need all these other rules. But you've created a world where... Sex is something that's happening with strangers or people you barely know or with a bunch of people. Well, then now, yeah, you got to create a bunch of rules. If you want to come back on over to the traditional sexual ethic, you're, you'll find you actually don't need all these rules. You've created, you made it very complicated. You've created this, all these rules because you messed it up. And if you'll come back to the traditional one, you won't have to be such Puritan prudes with all your rules. You can just... There's, you can just enjoy this gift God gave to men and women inside marriage, but you guys decided that that sex is something you do with with people that you don't actually care about and don't care about you. And when it becomes just this recreational activity that you do with people that you don't care about and they don't care about you, then yeah, you're going to have to create a bunch of rules around it that sound sometimes absurd. Sometimes they sound re- really weird. And that's what I noticed from this Susanna Weiss woman. Okay, not too much on that. I just noticed it, that what happened was the secular world broke the sexual ethic, now they're trying to rebuild it, and the one they're rebuilding is often really awkward and quite weird. Okay, I think that's all I got on that. Uh, We'll move on. Um, A friend of mine and regular listener, uh, Wesley, sent me a a clip from, uh, what's the name of this show? I don't know the name of the show. The guy's name is James Corden. Maybe it's the Late Late Show, possibly. So he's one of the late night host people. And he had Kanye West on. And one of the bigger parts of 2019, right, was the Kanye West album and his seemingly genuine conversion to the to the Christian faith. I, I don't have any... I'm going to stop saying that. He converted. I believe it. I think it's... Praise the Lord that someone has uh, got... has actually come to, come to faith and repentance. That's all very good stuff, and I'm, I'm not going to be skeptical of it. Uh, all right, so he was on with James Corden. Corden asks him a question, and and Kanye's response, it's not super articulate. Like, it can be said better than what he said. It can be said better, like, in a different way. But he makes a point 
that, I, that we need to draw something out of, at least two points. So let me play it for you, and then I'm basically just going to exegete this audio. Uh, so you're going to hear first James Corden, the host, and then Kanye West's response. Here we go. People who would say, and there will be people that will say, I don't believe it. I don't believe the reawakening of that Kanye is saying he's having. I don't believe if I look at the last two, three, four, five years of his life, I don't believe that this can be as uh, night and day as it is. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's that, you, that you would be one day living your life in one way and now saying everything is for this. I'm not sure I believe it. What would you say to those people? Well, I'd say when you go to sleep, would you agree that you are asleep when you are asleep? And when you wake up, would you agree that you are awake when you are awake? Yeah. Would you agree that, that those are two different states? People who don't believe are walking dead. They are asleep. And this is the awakening. First, the audio is that way because this was recorded on an airplane, by the way. That's the background noise. Uh, all right, so two thoughts from this. First, the the question from Corden. And he, I don't know if he's actually asking it because he's he, he sets it up in a way where it's people are going to say. So there's going to be people who say this. But I think this does represent a part of the secular culture that we need to recognize. He asked this question skeptically like, people are going to say that you were once one way and now you're another. How, uh, how, how do you respond to that kind of skepticism? Part of what that tells me is we've not done a great job of articulating the fundamental message of the Christian faith. Like that idea, I was once this way and now I'm different. That's like our whole thing. That's the whole pitch. It's not a pitch. It's just the truth. But like that's, we have a whole song about it, guys. It's very famous. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the idea of conversion. It's the fundamental story of Christianity. The fundamental story of Christianity is I was a sinner. I am a sinner. Broken in my own nature and through faith and, re- and repentance, I'm now different than I previously was. And so we've not done a great job if, if that's the skepticism. It's actually the fundamental claim we're making is that Jesus has made us different than we once were. And Kanye does a decent job of explaining that. Do, do you not understand that being awake and being asleep is different? Right? Well, I was asleep, and now I'm awake. It's not all that different from I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lame, but now I walk. I once was sick, but now I'm healed. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And so it's not a bad articulation of, it's not a bad articulation of what the actual Christian faith is. So, well, I can't believe I'm saying it. It's always weird when I have to say it, but well done to Kanye West on explaining of the fundamental truth of Christianity. All right. Uh, what should we do next? Let's go. Yeah, let's do this one. I got surprised by the response of something that I just offhandedly shared on social media. I saw a post someone shared that was, uh, I hate I hate eating out with people who give waiters a hard time. And I, I resonated with that. It's something I've experienced in my own life. I agreed with it. So I just clicked share. No other commentary. Well, maybe I did. Maybe I said something like, just be nice. Just Let's all be easy to serve in it, when it comes to when you're eating out with people. And I got way more response than I thought. Like, this is the 
this is way more people than I expected would care to respond to such a thing. I even put it out on Twitter and got some other responses as well. Most of them were agreeing with me uh, and ha- had some funny stories. But I, since people apparently care about this, uh, I've got some thoughts about the treatment of wait staff. So, again, the original post was, I hate eating out with people who give waiters a hard time. And, yeah, uh, I, there was once someone in my life who's not at all in my life anymore, uh, so I, I don't think listens to the show, so I'm, I'm safe in saying this. I'm basically positive that in our friend group, she, and you, if in, you went out and this person was there, there was 0% chance that something was not going to be complained about to somebody on that staff. She was going to find something to say, this isn't right, this is taking too long, this shouldn't be the way it is. I am convinced it's because she was just always looking for something for free. She was always going to complain. She was always going to be that person because she wanted to see if there was any chance whatsoever that she might get a free thing from this place. I think she's just cheap and... uh, was trying to make something happen for herself for free. But it always made me uncomfortable because, uh, one, believe it or not, I don't like conflict. don't like it at all. And I try to be a peacemaker uh, and and try to be easy to get along with. I mean, to the extent, you know, uh, Ross, Pastor Ross Estep, he, he commented on that Facebook post. He said, I will eat something I didn't order in, in order to keep the peace. I've done that. I've gotten something not even close to what I ordered. I don't, I don't care enough. I'm just gonna now eat it. This is a, I got that second thought. The second thought is this: the people who are willing to complain at restaurants, I don't understand the logic. I understand a little bit. Like you, I spent money. I should be able to get you know what I want out of the the money I spent. You know, and I, I'm not getting what I paid for. There's a little bit of logic there. But here's where I land on it: if you live 80 years and you have three meals a day. For 365 days a year. That's a lot of meals. I'm trying to do some math in my head. Is that? It's five digits. It's tens of thousands of meals. If this one happens to not be great, it's okay. I'll find another. Like, hours from now, I'm going to eat again. It's, I think it's, the math's good. I think it's 90,000. It's, it's around 90,000 meals. If one out of 90,000 meals wasn't exactly what I thought, and even if one out of the 90,000 meals was one I paid for, and it wasn't it's up to up to par of what I wanted and what I paid for, you know what, I'll be fine. I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to figure that out in my life. The idea of making a scene or making a complaint or making someone else's job harder, like, I just can't do that. And, and so, and the people who can, I don't get their logic. And so that's that's my two thoughts. There are those, I think, that are just angling like, they, they want something free. And there are others that just care about their meal too much. You're going to have another. You're an American. Why don't you deal with this one instead of complaining about it? And then also one of the things I've noticed, I think for some people, it is a, uh, it's, I, I don't get it. It's a weird thing. It's some kind of signal they're putting out to their friend group about how discerning they are. Like, one of the commenters, I think Christine, said, oh, I'm going to pull it up here on this Facebook thing, said, um, the, she doesn't like going out with the people who, uh, folks who didn't get their tea glass filled, like they didn't get their glass filled up within seconds of it being emptied. And that person saying, you know, that, that person just lost their tip. My server just lost the tip. I think that is some kind of signal or some kind of symbol they're trying to set to the people around them. Like you wouldn't believe how high my standards are. 
and it's like a pride thing. Like, no, we all just think you're a jerk because you're behaving like a jerk now. And so why don't you, why don't you get on over it? This comes from somebody, by the way. Uh, I, I have very humble work beginnings. I wash dishes at a pizza place. I made pizza at a pizza place. I did not my most masculine uh, feature, but I worked at a tanning salon. Uh, but I, and I waited some tables. Stuff happens. Things get hectic. That's what, be especially we're at this time of year. How about this? Be nice. Ha, ha, uh, hold people to a standard with some with some patience and flexibility that you would want for yourself. I mean, that's one of the things we're all really bad at is treating people like we want to be treated. Uh, and so that was shared by people. And if you have stories or things you want to share about that, you can find me at CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you have thoughts on how people treat, treat the wait staff. When we come back, I had another Facebook interaction about me watching the NFL. I want to cover one more Christmas thought. We'll move on to sports. We'll try to do some more stuff if we have time. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Ah yes, Christmas music. The one redeeming part of this time of year is the Christmas music, and especially the theology thereof is so so deep. It is very likely that during the show most closely uh, related to Christmas in terms of the date, that might be the 28th on, uh, or maybe the 21st. Uh, one, or, one or the other, we'll do like a Christmas special, and I probably will just talk about Christmas songs and play some pieces of them and and give you some of the deeper meanings. Because, man, cr- Christmas music, as a, as a guy who's trying to learn piano, it is musically the hardest music to play. It's very complex, but and, and the theology, not but, and the theology of it is uh, so much depth. Uh, our, over at Beachwood, we did Hark the Herald Angels Sing on, uh, I guess that was on Sunday. And if you get into all the verses of that song, and you think about that and understand what you're singing, you've basically gone to seminary. You've gotten seminary in a song when you go through Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And not really, guys. You should, if you want to really know a lot, you should do seminary. I'm just saying the song has a lot of theology in it. And now i got to run a tangent. I talked about church, and now I have a thought on church. I don't know if you've heard any good sermons lately, but I sure have. Good night, Doug, my big brother and our pastor. He just uh, he just re- he just rocked one on Sunday uh, with a passage I've never heard preached on. Consider this: I-, I listen to one sermon per day on Sundays. I guess I listen to two per day because I listen to one while working out, and I listen to one when I go to church. I've I've heard a lot of preaching in my life, and I've never heard anyone preach on Genesis thirty-eight. Uh, so Genesis thirty-seven opens the Joseph story. So there's the opening of Joseph, and he's like, hey, brothers, and to his parents, I'm having dreams where you guys are going to bow down to me. And so it's creating this conflict, and then they're gonna sell, they sell Joseph off to Egypt. And then there's a story about Joseph's brother Judah. And it's a really bad story. Judah's just a garbage person, bad, bad guy in this story, acting terrible. It's also a very awkward story uh, because there's a whole lot of sexual immorality, and the Bible doesn't, like the Bible's language doesn't help. Like it's really awkward to read, and so it. And then the next chapter, it goes right back to to Joseph's story. Joseph's story goes right. He's over in Potiphar's house, and so there's even a theory in theology that this uh, this story of of Judah, Joseph's brother, was added later. Like Moses wrote Genesis, and then someone else added this later. It just doesn't belong in the text. Now that those people are wrong. 
Uh, but that's a theory out there because it's so random. And I think it's why I've never heard a sermon from this text. But we're going through Genesis, and that's one of the awesome parts of being a church that goes through books of the Bible and exegetical preaching is you don't get to skip stuff, right? You don't you, you go through the book and you you preach what the what the Bible has. So there's safety in that. I've also made the point before. It's helpful because people who do the whole churches only ever talk about money. Well, it, if you uh, they they make the complaint. If you're an exegetical church, you just go through books of the Bible, just preach what's there, and when the money parts come up, that's not your fault. Because you were preaching through the book of that book of the Bible and it happened to come up. And so now you got to talk about what you got to talk about. So anyway, uh, Doug, re- really did a great job, obviously, with the text. And then in the application points, oh man, it was just, uh, I'll give you just one of them. Talked about the, the obvious consequences in the line here of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's chosen people, and how the parenting of each generation affected the kids. Like some of the worst parts rubbed off. And so he, he used that text properly then to challenge the parents, and I would add that to grandparents and uncles and aunts and those that influence kids, that the way that we behave, not just the words we say, the way we behave is making an impression on our kids, and it was, in cha- it was a challenge to be, uh, to, be to, to be people following Jesus faithfully and, and to make that example for our kids. And it's, it is an important uh, a word in a culture that I, I think has often wanted to try to outsource that job because that's an American thing. We outsource the, we don't do, we don't ever do anything for ourselves. We hire someone to do it. And so the idea of discipling our kids that our kids would follow Jesus, well, yeah, that's the pastor's job. Is youth pastor's job? I'm going to drop him off at the kids' church thing. You guys do that, right? Well, no, mom, no, dad, that's you. You are the first spiritual influence on your kid. And so it was a good challenge to them and I even thought of an illustration that I gave here recently. Don't get mad at me, parents, but I made the argument that the worst behaved athletes, so at high school and at the college level, the the athletes you have the most trouble with are almost always baseball players. And and the reason why is because baseball, if you're going to succeed at a high level, uh, you, you, uh, you didn't really play just high school ball or something like that. You played... Um, in a situation where your parents paid a lot of money to put you on a travel team and maybe even get you private lessons. And so what you know in the world is my parents organized our our calendar and our budget around me. The way we decided how we were going to spend money was based on my baseball career. And the way we were going to spend our Sundays was where are we going to be, what field are we going to be at, how how are we going to organize this calendar around me and my baseball schedule? And so it doesn't surprise me that it's often the most w- poorly behaved guys because their entire life they've been basically told, no, the world revolves around you. You're actually, you, you are the center of the world. And so what, how else would they behave when they, their entire life has taught them you're the center of the world? And so I've seen parents do that. And so we have, uh, we have this challenge that, that came out of this text you, parents, you influence young people. Your behavior matters. You are rubbing off on them. And it was just a great challenge. All right, I had to run that little little side comment there uh, because I said something about church and it made me think of uh, Doug. All right, in that, in that sermon. Uh, before we run, run out of time here, I have a quick thought on symbols. I posted something about watching an NFL game and somebody commented, uh, oh, I can't believe you watched the NFL. They're so politically correct. I don't even know what that means um because they're not that's not really the case uh 
but there is, uh, I mean, I think they're probably thinking about the whole, uh, the, the Kaepernick and kneeling thing a couple years ago, because apparently this person can't get over it. And it, it connected something for me in, in two ways. I, uh, it occurred to me, a, a conversation we've had before, there's a, a generation of Americans, it's the folks older than me, that care about symbols way too much. Like the actual things happening take a backseat to the symbols. You better respect the symbols. That's what matters. And then I had a discussion with some other older folks uh, online about how important it is to say Merry Christmas. And we want people who say Christmas, and that's a big deal. And they were lauding the people in public life that say Christmas, and that's it. And so you have these folks who really, really support the symbols. I need you to respect my symbols. And if you don't get the symbols and say the right things, then that's, this, that's our big problem. And that's what's going to save us is the symbols. And so then I just wanted to say, especially to those Christmas people, and I sort of did, tell me about how you're keeping Christ in Christmas. Tell me how you're feeding the hungry and comforting the afflicted and loving the outcast and forgiving the wrongdoer, how you're inspiring hopeless people. Yeah, that's how you keep Christ in Christmas is you do Christ things. You don't say it at Target, and, but we get to it obsessed with symbols instead of actually what's happening in the real world around us. Okay, we've run all of the time for serious stuff. Thanks for listening. Let's move on to sports. Are you Through the magic of pre-recording, at the time Heath and I are having this conversation, the college football Playoff rankings just came out moments ago. They did, right after church, yep. You actually broke the news to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing around doing the church stuff. Uh, you, you do after church, you know, just talking and all that. And then, Yeah, well, I was outside pushing my daughter on the swings. And yes. I was like, oh, it's 1220. Let me check the phone here. And nice. they, were, they had just announced them, so. And the uh, they ended up being number one was LSU. Yep. Number two, Ohio State. Three, Clemson. And four, Oklahoma. Yep. Let's start here. Uh, that fourth team being Oklahoma in, oh, that was pretty easy, right? There's no other candidate. Yeah, I mean for it. Utah lost out, so so this wasn't even hard. They dropped. No, it wasn't hard. Uh, I guess you would have already thought of this. Like, I guess you came into the morning knowing who the number four team was going to be. Yeah, this was the. I mean, I think everyone knew it. I didn't after know. you know last week's. I didn't conference games it. right that over, over last night. I guess the only was the only mystery who would be number one then. I think so, uh, okay. just based on the SEC championship and the Big Ten championship. I think a lot of people thought they would flip flop. Just based on how bad Georgia is, yeah, um, and they haven't been able to score points all year. You know, which you know, LSU's defense is not great, but playing Georgia makes your defense look spectacular. Yes. <laughs> so you know, everybody's saying, "Well, they fixed your defense." I'm like, no, they really didn't. They didn't. No, I. Uh, Georgia is the same team that lost to South Carolina. So yeah, there's a, um, there's a. I'm a being a Dallas Cowboys fan. There's been times in the season they've really looked great. Yeah. Like, well, there's. There is nothing better for your right. offense than playing the you know pick, pick up terrible a terrible defense. Off, yeah, and also Vanderbilt scored thirty eight on LSU or twenty eight. I'm sorry. Is that oh? Is that pretty early in the season? Yeah, it was fairly early mid season. You know, LSU's whole philosophy is to outscore you, though. I don't think they they're not a great defense. They're not a great defense. The idea is we just score a lot, right? Um, and they have, I mean these th- these four quarterbacks. Wow. I mean, how about three of them being transfer portals? That's nuts. That's crazy. Uh, the, these are. Probably, the, I mean, take Tua. These are the four best quarterbacks in football, and there's not a bad one among them. Jalen Hurts is the worst among them. Yeah, he, he is the he is the quote unquote worst among them. But there's no. He's bad not ones. a pure passer. He's more of a running quarterback. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, all, all these quarterbacks can move. That's mm-hmm. what I like about them. Yeah, I stayed up and watched uh, all the way till ten o'clock to watch the Clemson game. The incorporation of Trevor Lawrence as a runner is becoming 
Like they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. And it's very effective. They have to. Ever since Taj Boyd has been a vital part of Clemson's offense, yeah. that's what the offense is. It's not a run first quarterback offense. No. But it is if the play breaks down, quarterback has to be able to move. And he and Lawrence does it better than he looks. He's deceptively He sure is, man. Very good at, at running. That's actually how I feel about Joe Burrow, too. He doesn't look like a guy who should right. be able to run, but he's pretty good. He's a that. manageable runner. I he mean, really is. Yeah, it's not a deficiency. The uh, So it's going to be Ohio State and Clemson out in Phoenix, and then you got the uh, whatever bowl that is, uh, the, the PlayStation Fiesta Bowl, I believe. Yeah. The last time I still call it Tostitos. The Tostitos. <laughs> oh, well, that, they were the long Just time. Just because it was so long, yeah. The last time those two met out there, it was not pretty. It was not pretty for Ohio State. 31 nothing. It was Urban Meyer. Yes, it was. Oh, they laid an egg I out I think there. that was his only shutout of his career, if I'm the, not mistaken. Only time. Yeah, you're right. I remember hearing that stat. Yep. Uh, do, do you have any doubt that LSU will just outscore Oklahoma? Like, LSU is just going to right. – they're going to give a lot of points to Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah Oklahoma is going to score a lot, I think. Um, I really I really don't. I think that's a toss-up game for me. Oh, wow. Well, that would be fun. Uh, I don't it, want it'll it be, be fun to watch, you know, if you, if you don't care for defense. <laughs> uh, it's just what it is. You're right, though. Um, I think – LSU's defense may be a little better than Oklahoma's, so I'll give the advantage to LSU just based on that. Only because it's only a little bit. Right, it's very slim. In my football estimation, from all the football I've watched, the best two teams in the country are actually Clemson and Ohio State. I feel like that semifinal is the real one. Yeah, I think when you're talking about the best team in the country, you're really saying the most complete teams in the country. Yeah. I think they are the most complete. I agree. I think Clemson's defense is better than Ohio State's. Mm -hmm. Now, they probably do have the best defensive end in the country at Ohio State. That one player, Chase Young. Yeah, the one player. But to me, Isaiah Simmons is the best football player in the country. I think that's true. Multiple but, positions. Hmm. He's very good at all the positions that he plays. When he's you, not deficient in any of them. When you and I watched the South Carolina game, I, I, I was remarking and marveling that is he lined up as defensive end? Is he lined up at corner? Is he lined up in the slot now? Yeah, so just <laughs> against Virginia, he blitzed the – um, the passer on one play. In the very next play, he was downfield 40 yards from the quarterback and defended a pass. Incredible. Yeah. He so, is. I mean, I, um, it's ridiculous. Am I, you, you tell me if I'm, if I'm taking this too far. I think winner of Clemson, Ohio State, wins con- uh, wins comfortably over an LSU team. Yeah, I believe that is true. So, so we're on the same page there. Yep. Uh, I think Clemson probably is the more complete team uh, than Ohio State. I am interested to see what Brent Venables does against uh, this Fields kid. Yeah, well, if you go back and watch what, what watch what Wisconsin did against Ohio State, uh, there are things you can do. Uh, I think he was sacked five or six times. Wow. Um, they were losing 21-7 to in the half. Now, Wisconsin just didn't have the depth mm. or the talent to, to keep up with them in the second half. So Talent s- always takes over. It, it just does. does. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't think LSU or Ohio State is going to be Clemson. I just don't. I definitely don't think LSU can. I don't I – th- uh, that game, maybe LSU scores more than I think. They scored 20 20- one or right. something. Well, here's what but, I like about the Clemson staff. They are 100% focused on Ohio State. Whoever they play yeah. after that does not matter. Doesn't, nope. Whether it's Wake Forest, Wofford, LSU, Ohio State, this <laughs> is what I like. Yeah. You have to take one game at a time because the next game doesn't matter if you lose this one. So, yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. Ohio State did go 13-0, right? They did. So, these are two. So, did LSU. This, there's three 13-0 teams. Three 13-0s, yeah. That's incredible. And that's cool, yeah. Uh, and I, I love that about this playoff. All right. So, then uh, let's do a little bit of recap of the actual championship games. Uh, so, uh, Wisconsin challenged Ohio State. They did. LSU rolled Georgia, and Clemson really did. They looked the part, man. They looked the part. Against they looked Virginia. just like they did in the playoff last year. Um, this is the Clemson team I think everyone was expecting to come out week one this year. Um, but if you've paid attention to any Clemson in the past 10 years, they steadily build towards sure. the end of the season to improve, to get better, to play their best ball. And that's what they're doing now. 
I don't want my teams to peak in week five. No, you don't, because if you watch any of the playoff, they always peak early and they always lose in the playoff. Yeah. I want to have a nice slow build to the towards the postseason where everyone is That's uh, why I like the Clemson breaks down their phases. This is championship phase. Yeah. They're, they're built for this. This is what they're built for. Yeah. Um, okay, so then the a uh, couple other games real quick. of uh, I'm doing some math in my head. Of these other New Year's New Year Six games, which one intrigues you the most? So it'll be Georgia-Baylor. That's going to be a blowout. For whom? For Baylor. They'll score a bunch? Yep. It's going to be Wisconsin-Oregon in the uh, Rose Bowl. That sounds fun to me. I think Oregon's going to take that one. Oregon over Wisconsin. I was disappointed Utah lost to Oregon, but Oregon just utterly outplayed them. They re- Oregon was really impressive to me. Um, now, I picked Utah to be in the playoff. Obviously, missed on that one, but the, Oregon looked really good. Yeah, I think there was a – you weren't the only one. Utah was a very hot pick last week. Yeah, they were – I mean, know? they were great. The um, the other one I'm thinking, it Memphis gets, a, gets to be in one of the big bowls, and it should be Penn State. That sounds fun. Yeah, I'm taking Memphis on that one. I I would love I love those. I know when, when the group of five team plays, right. it used to be Boise State. You know their coach just accepted the Florida State job. I think he's going to coach no. in the bowl game though. Yeah, the Florida State. I love Mike Norvell. I think he's great. Oh wow, he's young enough to change the culture there and get what he wants. Good for them. So hopefully Florida State is ascendant on the way back. We'll see what happens. If yes. they give him the resources he needs, yeah. I think they they made a great I did great not hire. Hear that? He's a great coach. I love him. If also Flo- Kiffin to Ole Miss. How about that? I did hear that yesterday. Yeah. I did hear that. That's going to be crazy. Um, the fact that he continues to get jobs. Like, I don't know. He's he's not been all that successful. I, I think the problem with Lane Kiffin is everyone judges him off the debacle at Tennessee, yeah. which he was utterly wrong for. Yes. Uh, he's also yes. apologized for that. Yes. He's also, you know, said how young he was. He made a horrible decision. He did them wrong, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But what he's done at FAU, they've been in the conference championship like two or three of the past four years. That is actually a good point. On this level, um, he's, maybe he's, he's changed and he's proven himself. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's winning in Boca Raton, so... I know it's not I an mean, easy place to win. Give him a shot. See what he does. I'm I'm for it. Easy place to live, not an easy place to win. Uh, That's to right. win. Um, so next week we'll probably we'll have the whole bowl list, so we can probably start breaking out some yep. of those games. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. And then as playoff time gets nearer, we'll talk about that. Uh, so thank you, sir, for giving us some time for sports. I appreciate it. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey True Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.